Well, uh, today we're beginning an eight-week series on the Beatitudes, uh, which are found in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, the Beatitudes are part of the teachings of Jesus that we know uh, as the Sermon on the Mount. I imagine most everyone here today, uh, even if you're not familiar with the content of the Sermon on the Mount, you're, uh, refer- you're aware of this, uh, this, that this sermon exists. Uh, we are limiting our focus in the current series that I'm starting today to the Beatitudes. Uh, but when we get to the start of 2019, we're going to enter about a three-month series uh, on the remainder of the Sermon on the Mount. And just so you kind of know what to expect between those two series, kind of uh, late November into December, uh, we will be doing a, a number of different things, some of which will be uh, focusing on a Christmas-themed uh, series. Uh, because the Beatitudes are part of the Sermon on the Mount, I do want to share a little bit of introductory information uh, about this uh, very famous uh, sermon. Uh, as I mentioned, it's found in Matthew chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 1, and then the Sermon on the Mount continues uh, through the end of chapter 7. Now, in our Bibles, uh, it is presented as a single sermon. Uh, But many scholars believe that Matthew compiled uh, teachings of Jesus that would have been shared with his disciples uh, over an extended period uh, of time. There are a variety of reasons that scholars think this, uh, including the weightiness of the subject matter. They, uh, They say that it was unlikely that Jesus would have thrown this much weighty information at his disciples Uh, in a single setting. Uh, They also say this because of the variety of the the subject matter, and I'm sure there are other reasons uh, as well. You're welcome to your opinion on which it is. Uh, I just thought that I would uh, let you know that. Uh, Whether it was a single message or a compilation of messages, uh, scholars are agreed that the Sermon on the Mount presents content that should be considered Jesus' official and solemn teachings on things that are of central importance. Big deal things is what Jesus is teaching about uh, in the Sermon uh, on the Mount. So Matthew 5 introduces the Sermon on the Mount this way. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And scholars note that there are indicators in these uh, first couple of sentences that clue us in uh, to the official nature, the importance of this teaching, that this teaching is dealing with things of central uh, importance. Now, what I just read was from the NIV, and the NIV obscures these indicators a little bit. So I, I want to read this again from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Here's how it reads. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now, scholars note that there is significance in the fact that Matthew tells us uh, that when Jesus started this teaching, that he did so when he sat down. Because for Jewish rabbis, uh, they sat down when they were teaching officially. They sat down for things that were of central importance. They sat down for things that were weighty. Uh, the, the times when their teachings were of an official variety. They also find significance, uh, and of course scholars debate these things, but many find significance in this detail that Jesus opened his mouth 
uh, to begin teaching. They say that it is more than just sort of an interesting way to uh, communicate, he said. That, that it's, it's more than just that. But that in Greek, this phrase is actually a significant one that indicates a solemn, grave, and dignified utterance. And so what I want us to get from this is the Sermon on the Mount is a solemn and official teaching of Jesus on things of central importance. Uh, many have referred to the Sermon on the Mount as the manifesto of the King, the manifesto of Jesus. Some have referred to it as the Christian Constitution, the Christian Constitution. Another thing to note is that this sermon, whether given in a single setting or uh, representing a compilation, the teachings here were for Jesus' disciples. This is, this is a sermon for people who are following Jesus, but it was likely given uh, in, the, in a setting where people who were not his followers were hearing what he said. So it was intended for followers, but it was uh, likely given in the hearing of those who were not yet followers. And so I think we can look at these, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes as instructions to Christ followers as to how we are to live as Christians and also information for seekers on what it means to become and live a Christian life, to become a Christian and to live a Christian life. So again, official and solemn teaching by Jesus on central things, the manifesto of the king, the Christian constitution. And the Sermon on the Mount begins, as I've already mentioned, with the Beatitudes, which is going to be the focus of this current series for the next eight weeks. And there are a couple of things that I want to share in introduction to the Beatitudes before we actually look at the first one. Uh, first of all, I want you to know that the Beatitudes should be thought of as exclamations. Uh, at least that's what William Barclay tells us they should be thought of. I agree with this. We, we should not hear the Beatitudes. We should not read them in our minds in the hushed tones of an NPR radio host. That's not how we should hear the Beatitudes. I think that's the way we tend to read uh, the Beatitudes. We shouldn't hear them spoken in the most conscientious library voice. We shouldn't do that. The Beatitudes are exclamations. They're, they're basically exclam exclamations of the wonderful blessing it is to be a believer. They are a celebration of the blessedness of being a Christian. They're a celebration of the joy of being a Christian. Their basic meaning is, their basic message is, oh, the sheer joy of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King. And while I believe that the Beatitudes are aspirational, they are pointing the way to seekers as to what it means to be a Christian and to Christians of what it means to truly live as a Christian, the main emphasis on the Beatitudes isn't to point to what could be, but rather it is a celebration of what is, what is true for Christians. The Beatitudes are things that are true for us as followers of Christ. And so they're, they're kind of like Jesus is congratulating his disciples on what is true about them as his uh, followers. 
The other thing by way of introduction before we look at this first beatitude that I think is important for us to understand is, is the basic meaning of this word blessed. You know, each beatitude begins with blessed are. So we need to know what, what is meant when it says, uh, when we use that word blessed. Uh, the Greek word that is translated blessed is the word makarios. And Barclay summarizes the meaning of that word this way. Makarios describes that joy which has its secret within itself, that joy which is serene and untouchable and self-contained, that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. So Christian blessedness is the reality of joy that is completely untouchable by any of the circumstances in life that is completely unassailable. I think that most of us live so far below that kind of experience of joy that's available to us that we have conveniently forgotten that Jesus actually told us that the joy that we find in him is joy that no one can take away from us. John 16, 22. That, that is the kind of joy that we're to have as Christians. And of course, this first, uh, the, the Beatitudes tell us that uh, as well. Barclay continues, The Beatitudes speak of that joy which seeks us through our pain, the joy which sorrow and loss and pain and grief are powerless to touch, that joy which shines through tears and which nothing in life and death can take away. Nothing in life, nothing in death can take away this joy. No matter the circumstances of life, the Christian has the serene and untouchable joy which comes from this one thing. Walking forever in the company and presence of Jesus. That's what we need to have joy. And so the Beatitudes are triumphant shouts of bliss for a permanent joy that nothing in this world can ever take away. Nothing can take it away. Let's turn our attention to the first Beatitude. It's found in verse 3. Uh, here's what it says. I believe this will be on the screen behind me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Or consistent with what I've just been telling you, it would be something like, Oh, the bliss of the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now let's be clear that it's the poor in spirit that are called blessed. Jesus is not here calling the state of material poverty blessed. Material poverty is not a good thing. Jesus would never call blessed a situation where people don't have enough to eat and live in dangerous and unhealthy condition. Jesus uh, loves the poor. Christians are to love and serve the, material, the materially poor. But material poverty is not what is called blessed here. It is the poor in spirit who are called blessed. And that means something very specific. 
And to understand what it means, I want us to consider the word poor in both Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was written in, and in Aramaic Hebrew, which is the language Jesus spoke. He spoke Aramaic when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. The Greek word that is translated into English as poor, and I'm not sure I'll pronounce this exactly right, Stan, you can correct me if you know, uh, is the word P-T-O-C-H-O-S, I'll just leave it at that, and it means absolute and abject poverty. Absolute and abject poverty. The idea of crouching or cowering is in view with this word. And so what it describes is the kind of poverty of those who are literally forced to their knees to beg. And then according to Barclay, there are two words in Hebrew that are translated as poor. The words ani and ebion. And the meaning of these words, he tells us, developed over time. But at the time of Jesus, they had come to describe those who, because they have no earthly possessions whatsoever, have put their entire trust in God. And so these words were, were used uh, commonly to describe material poverty. But in the Beatitudes, what, what Jesus says is that it is the poor in spirit. And so these words are used to describe uh, the person who is poor in spirit. And so we get to the heart of what it means to be poor in spirit by combining this Greek and Hebrew understanding of the word poor and applying it to those who are poor in spirit. And so here would be the basic meaning of this first beatitude. Blessed are those who have realized their own utter helplessness and have put their whole trust in God. Another way that we might be able to say this is, blessed are those who are humble enough to admit that they need help and have turned to God for the help that they need. To apply this biblical truth in our own circumstances and time, I think we should acknowledge that so many of the messages we receive in our culture and you can look at all different ways that we receive this message. We receive it in advertising. We receive it through self-help books. We receive it from inspirational speakers. And, and we even receive it oftentimes from Christian authors. We receive a message that is something quite different than this message of the first beatitude. What we are often told is that we can achieve anything that we set our minds to achieve. We are told that nothing is out of our reach. We are told that if we just tap into ourselves in the way that we should, if, if we just appreciate the way that we are and, and, and discover who we really are, that we are independent and that we are powerful and that we are unstoppable, we are fierce and we are a force to be reckoned with. I don't think I'm alone in, in recognizing this theme in, in advertising and self-help books and from in, inspirational speakers. These are, these are the posters that get put in businesses all over the country. Do you know that, it, I, I hate to break this to everyone, but you know it's actually not true that we can achieve anything we set our minds to achieve? Have you, has life... 
Has life impressed that truth upon you yet? Here's what's actually true. We can achieve only those things that our giftings enable us to achieve. And we can achieve them only to the extent that we possess the character that will enable us to achieve them. Let me give you an example. I have never had any hope of being a professional basketball player. None. It does not matter how much I want to. It does not matter how much I set my mind to it. It, it does not matter how often I visualized in my living room shooting Nerf basketball uh, that I was actually on an NBA court winning a championship. None of that mattered. I could not have been an NBA basketball player if I had dedicated every moment of my waking life to achieving that goal. And those of you who have played basketball with me know that that is true. <laughs> Could have never done it. We're told we can do and become anything we want. Now, I want to be clear. I do think that most people are capable, capable of much more than they allow themselves to dream they can be. But it does not mean that we can do and become anything. And even the things that we can do and become, factors outside of our control have to be right in order for us to achieve those things. One factor is we have to have the health necessary in order to reach whatever objective we have. Most of us, somewhere along the line, need another person to see something in us, to see some potential in us that they're willing to, to help bring out. They're willing to help us realize we need someone to give us a chance somewhere along the line. Even the things that we think are in our control aren't entirely in our control. And yet we're told with messages throughout our culture that we are fierce and we are unstoppable and nothing can get in our way if we're just determined enough. And this attitude of self-sufficiency, of the all-powerful self, extends to our views of all sorts of things, and it even shapes things like our view of salvation and being right with God. So much of the human race and ginormous, very precise term, ginormous percentages of Americans believe that we can cobble together our own belief system and determine for ourselves how we can be right with God if there is a God. We don't even have to be sure there is a God to determine that we know how to be right with that God. And so even salvation becomes something for which we're not dependent on anybody else, but rather we convince ourselves that it is within our power to control we tell ourselves things like that it's based on our own merit, our being good enough to, to have God recognize our awesome, fierce selves. We come to believe it's within our power to do things like shape and determine the terms on which God is going to be okay with us. And it is these kinds of attitudes that keep many people from coming to Christ. And it's attitudes like these that keep many of us 
who say we're Christians miserable even though we say we're Christians. And here's what's making us miserable. And here's what's keeping us from coming to faith in Christ. We're living like we are fully capable and fully in control, which Jesus tells tells us is not a blessed way of living. You can't be blessed saying I'm, I'm capable and I'm in control. The way of living that God says, that Christ says is blessed, the, the way of living that provides untouchable joy, according to Jesus, is the way of the poor in spirit. It, it is those who don't view themselves as fierce and unstoppable, but those who recognize their utter helplessness. And so they have put their entire trust not in themselves, but in God. The life that causes Jesus to exclaim that it is blessed is not the life that says, I am a lion, hear me roar. It isn't the life that says, whatever I can conceive, I can achieve. It's not the life that says, I'm so fierce that I can't be denied. It is the life that says, I am so needy that my only hope is to trust myself fully to the care of God. And it extends to every area of life. From salvation, to vocation, to health, to relationships, every aspect of life. The life that is blessed is the one that has the posture that says, God, I cannot do this on my own. It is all beyond my ability. I need you. If this is your attitude, if this is the condition of your heart, Jesus says that you are blessed. You are so very blessed. You have embraced the thing that will bring untouchable joy to your life. I believe, and I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone when I say this, that we lack joy to the degree that we have failed to fully release control of our lives to God and fully trust everything to Him. And I believe that Jesus, I believe this because Jesus said, those who are blessed those who have unassailable joy are those who have realized their helplessness. Those who are totally relying on Him. It is of those people that Jesus went on and said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their utter helplessness. And so they have turned to God for help. Blessed are those people. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? Stated very simply, it is the realm of God's rule. The kingdom of heaven is the realm of God's rule. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's us know that poverty of spirit 
is necessary to enter God's kingdom. We cannot come to God on our own terms. We, we can't come to God saying, look how accomplished I am. Look how awesome I am. Look how fierce I am. Look how moral I am. Look how together I am. Admit it, God. You know that your kingdom needs me. That's not how we come to God. We, we come to God, we enter His kingdom by admitting what God says is true. We are broken. We're needy. We're destitute. We have no hope of meriting God's favor. The way into the kingdom of heaven is admitting your need of God and turning to Him in faith, casting yourself on His mercy and His grace. Poverty of spirit is necessary to enter the kingdom, and poverty of spirit is necessary to render obedience to God as a member of His kingdom. The only way that I can, the only way that you can give the obedience to God that He deserves is if we stay connected even in our redeemed condition, to the fact that apart from Him, we are destitute. We're never to, to, to forget that. That apart from God, we are destitute. Apart from God, we are hopeless. Apart from Him, we're not up to the challenges of life. We cannot do it on our own. And we have to fully grasp this truth. We have to fully embrace this truth. It is only then that we'll be able to fully obey God, fully make our lives available to God and say, God, you do with me whatever you want. Because it's only when we get to that place of realizing our own utter helplessness and our own dependence on God that we can ever trust that God's ways are better than our ways, and we need to go with what He says instead of what we say. Until we get to that place, we will continually fight with God for control of our lives. Barclay writes, The kingdom of God is the possession of the poor in spirit. Because the poor in spirit have realized their own utter helplessness without God, and they have learned to trust and obey God. It's easier to obey God when we think He's got answers we don't have. It's easier to obey God when we realize our own frailty and His power. As long as we continue to think that we are something then it's hard to obey God. We'll continue to fight for control. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit have unassailable joy, for they have entered the kingdom of heaven and they are living life in obedience to the king. Being in the kingdom, living in obedience to the king, this makes a person blessed. If you're here today and you recognize your need of God, 
you are blessed. That recognition is of key importance to the experience of joy that is to mark the life of a Christian. And so, to those of us here today, who if we're honest, we have to say, you know what, I am lacking joy in my life. I'm lacking joy. We're called today to examine ourselves and to be honest with ourselves about something. Have we put our whole trust in God for everything? For salvation? For what we do with our lives? For who we've married or who we're going to marry? For all of our human relationships? Have we put our full trust in God. Without the experience of joy in our lives, what is very likely is that we have tried to maintain confidence in ourselves instead of fully placing our confidence in the Lord. What I desire for all of us here today is that we would experience joy, that we would experience this blessed way of living and we do it according to Jesus. We do it by admitting that we're not up to the confidence that we've been placing in ourselves. We're not up to that. We do it by admitting how needy we are, how much we need Him. And then we do it by trusting ourselves fully to Him. It's of key importance to experiencing joy, being poor in spirit. And it's characteristic of the life that Jesus says is blessed. Let's stand. Oh, oh, you're my redeemer.
Oh, you're my redeemer. 